0: I'll be reading from John 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in My name, He may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another.
1: Well, it's been said that uh, that dog is that the dog is man's best friend, and um, I didn't really believe it until I came across the results of a survey, which actually showed that um, these participants were asked in a survey that if you were put on a deserted island and you had the choice of someone or something being with you, uh, parents, children, significant others, uh, close to 60% said that they would want their pet, their dog there. Um, You know, when you're younger, you often uh, define wealth in terms of money and things. And when you get older, you begin to determine wealth, and you get to view wealth in terms of relational capital, friendships. Friendships become much more significant and important to us. Do you have a friend that, that is that is close that you can be intimate with, that you can be vulnerable to? I mean, do, do you have either someone in this church or perhaps your spouse or another? person that you've known for a long time, and have you enjoyed the intimacy and the transparency, the safety that can come from a friend? I think many of us uh, would probably say, I don't have a close friend. Well, as we begin this Advent series, you know, Advent just means coming, and so it's a reminder to the church the four weeks prior to Christmas of, of thinking about why Jesus Christ came And we'll be looking out of the Gospel of John and we see that he has come to be a shepherd, to be a king, to be a savior, but he's also come to be a friend. And the friendship that Jesus brings is unique. It is unsurpassable in terms of his friendship. I think you heard it as Joy read the text. Let me just draw out a few aspects of his friendship to us. First would be, of course, uh, you know, as a friend, as a friend, Jesus loves us with an unsurpassable, a quintessential love. Now, let me remind you of the context where we are. We're in John 15, so this is Thursday night. This is the night before he's going to die. So Jesus has already had the last supper with his disciples. He's already washed their feet. He's already confronted his betrayer. He's already told them that he's going to go away, but that he will come back. And he's already told them about the comforter coming, the Spirit. And so he has has another chance here to comfort his disciples. And and so he chooses to comfort them by explaining to them how much he loves them. You you, You see it in 13. Let me just jump right to 13. greater love, he says, greater love has no one except one that would lay down his life For his friends. And Jesus is giving us here the gold standard of love. If you want to define what what a loving friendship is, Jesus is giving it to us right now. It's not a sentimental, syrupy, sappy kind of emotional high. This is a laying down life. This This is bearing a cross carrying our sin and our shame and our guilt to reconcile us to the Father. It, this was not a coerced love. It, it, it wasn't something taken from him. He laid it down. It was a voluntary thing. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 17, he says, I laid it down of my own accord. It's not just a, a willing love. It's not just a willing of laying down his life, but it's also costly. I mean, the this was not an inexpensive love. He laid down his life. You can kind of pick up if you were to draw a picture of how costly was it. Well, if I could just remind you of his of his last words on the cross, some of which were, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" You, you see this picture of him bearing the physical brunt of a crucifixion, but now he's bearing the spiritual judgment of a father bringing justice down that he might issue to us mercy. This, this forsakenness that the Son bore from the Father. You have this, this costly love. That's why one author said it this way. He says, The eternal divine love reached its complete and unsurpassable expression in the death of Christ, which was at the same time the death of a man for his friend. So you, you see this, this incredible demonstration of love but it's more than an expression of love it, it actually it, it actually accomplished something he made us friends this isn't a demonstration he actually delivered us this laying down his life he actually achieved salvation for us he's made us friends now this you know we think God's a friend to everybody I've been nice to God he's nice to me we don't have a problem but you know it's it might surprise you to know that the Bible speaks about humanity being at enmity with God or being at odds with God or being enemies of God. You think, I have no problem with God. I mean, what's the big deal? We think of an at enmity being something like having road rage with God, that, that if, it equivalent, if it's not equivalent to road rage, then I'm not an enemy of God. But do you realize that there are very benign forms of being at enmity? You, you can have a disregard for God. You can be ungrateful. You can just be ignorant of them. The one giving you life, the one giving you breath, the one sustaining every moment of your existence, and you have nothing to do with them. That's being at enmity with God. And so this, is, this laying down his life, as a friend, he's going to show us this inexpressible love. He lays down his life not just to demonstrate love, but to deliver us from sin. It's not just inspiring, it's reconciling. It's not just attractive, but it actually is salvific. He brings salvation to us. It's not a potential salvation that he hopes somebody will tie into. It's an actual salvation. It's to leave us with our mouths open wide. Now listen, there are many acts of sacrificial love that we have seen, or perhaps you've read about it in history. One example that I think is quite impressive is the, um, the capturing of the USS Pueblo, the, the spy ship that the North Koreans, many of us were alive when this happened. Perhaps we've forgotten it. Many of you have read about it, but 1968, uh, this ship was uh, captured by the North Koreans. This is at the height of the Vietnam War or at the ascendancy of it. And, and they, these 83 sailors were captured, one killed. 82, tortured. One instance was they had 13 sailors in a room. They made him sit in rigid form for hours. A soldier would come in. Door flew open and he beat nearly senseless with the back of his gun, one soldier. The next day, the door flew open. Same man, same soldier. They were in assigned seats. Third day, the door flew open, another sailor took a seat. The next day, the door flew open, another sailor took a seat, and they rotated. That's pretty impressive. They knew the sailor would not survive, so they all bore the brunt of that punishment. That is impressive. When you see this, that the Son of God would leave glory take on flesh, and voluntarily lay down his life for us. I mean, we are meant to just be stunned, stunned. I, are you a friend of Jesus? I mean, do you sense this supernatural divine love? Do you know that you're a, the Christian, that you're a, a special object of his favor? Do you recognize you have been loved with a love that is unimaginable, that, that it's incomprehensible? do you do you get it many times we don't I, I mean I've been wrestling with this all week, trying to assess my own feelings and appreciation and affections that have been that, that have been developed from this and, and sometimes it, it just kind of leaves us you know vague and Jonathan Edwards, by the way, spoke to this here's what he here's what he wrote to his people. he wrote it in religious affections, but he says. How insensible and unmoved are most men about the great things of another world? How dull are their affections? How heavy and hard their hearts are in these matters? How can they sit and hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of his giving his infinitely dear son to be offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of men and women, and of the unparalleled love of the innocent, the holy, the tender lamb of God Manifested in his dying. He says, can anything be set in our view greater and more important? Is there anything in your life that is more wonderful and surprising? Well, I, I think at least cognitively, we'd agree there isn't. And yet, why, don't we, why aren't we impressed with this friendship? Are, are we just distracted from life? Is life so busy that we just can't dwell upon it, take the time to consider it? You know, Carol read me a stat that was just not as inspiring, actually quite alarming. Try to figure out how many times, if you own a smartphone, I know a few of you still have the flip phones. Looks cool when you flip it up, but it really doesn't work. But, but how many times do you think you touch that a day? The average time people spend touching their smartphones is 2,617 times. Now, that's average. Maybe you're less, maybe you're better than the other people, but, but that's an average. The distractedness takes our minds off this glorious truth. Not just the distractedness, but what about the, um, the familiarity we have with it? You hear this, don't you? You hear this often from the pulpit. You know, I love you becomes kind of, what's well, familiar, I know it. And, and we lose the gravity of what we're saying when it says he laid down his life for us. You know, familiarity breeds a certain contempt. But it shouldn't because the value of the object hasn't changed just because you've become familiar with it. Or or another reason, I think there's a certain distrust that we have. There's There's a certain struggle that is in us from Eden. We just have a certain distrust of God. You know, God can say to the first couple, you have all these trees, you have all of this garden, everything is for your pleasure. That one I don't want you to touch. For reasons you may not fully understand, trust me on this one, but that one don't touch. But you have all this here. And and what is it that we want? We want the one. There's a certain distrust. It's not simply that they ate of the fruit. It's they didn't trust in the goodness of God to provide for them, and that there would be a reason that they couldn't eat that. There's a certain distrust. Does he really love us like this? There's a certain also disbelief that we have about his word. Another reason that you might find this to be less attractive or less overwhelming is you look at your own life, and you know that you're broken, And you sin repeatedly. And in fact, sometimes you pursue the sin that you hate after committing it. And we say, how can he love me? How could he love me? I repeat the same sin over and over. I get the same anger. I move to the same pornography. I move to the same envy. We are paralyzed with comparisons, looking at everybody else. They're prettier, they're better, they're holier. Why would God love me? They've got to love them first. And we just run ourselves right out of appreciating that as a friend he loves us with an unsurpassable love. The Christian is called to meditate, to consider, to focus on this, to take it like a sapphire and let it just sparkle in the light, to look at its brilliance and think about it and chew upon it and deliberate on it and believe it. You must believe it. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in England in the 19th century, said, How heart cheering to the believer is the delight which God has in his saints. We cannot see any reason in ourselves why the Lord should take pleasure in us. We cannot take delight in ourselves, for we often have to groan, being burdened, conscious of our sinfulness and deploring our unfaithfulness. And we hear that God's people cannot take much delight in us either. But we love to dwell on this transcendent truth, this glorious mystery, that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so does the Lord rejoice over us. It's there for you to believe. He's said it. And do we believe it? Do we rejoice in it? Do we relax in it? Do we rest in it that you're loved with an unsurpassable love? So as a friend, he loves us. Now, if you're not a Christian here, Maybe you're at odds with the church or you've struggled in the faith. Isn't this kind of friendship appealing? I mean, don't you think that fundamental to a good life is not the absence of troubles but the presence of a friend? I mean, friends love at all times. A brother is born for adversity. I mean, don't we want a friendship like this? Jesus has come to be such a friend for us. Okay, the second aspect of the friendship that I'd like you to look at with me in verse 14, is that as a friend, Jesus does call us to obey him. He does. Look at what it says in 14. You are my friends if you obey my command. You are my friends, he says. Now, is he, what's he saying? here? Look at 14, because it does trip people up. Is he saying that, that if I'm not obedient, that I'm not his friend? Is he saying that my friendship is conditioned? In other words, his friendship to me is conditioned on my obedience to him. Is that what he's saying? I don't think he is. I think he's saying it's not a condition of friendship, but our obedience is a characteristic of friendship. In other words, our friendship, our obedience to Jesus evidences a friendship. It's evidence of it. I think... This is kind of intuitive, isn't it? I mean, if you're married, look at your marriage. If you're not married, look at a close friend. If there's never a loving obedience that exists between the two parties, what kind of friendship would you have? I mean, if love never is being exhibited, if obedience and submission and that sort of thing isn't going back and forth between husband and wife or friend to friend, what kind of friendship would you have? It's kind of intuitive. No. Our obedience is born out of love for him because he has loved us, because he laid down his life. Now, this is an important distinction. Your obedience to Jesus is because he has already loved you. It's not seeking to be loved by him. The obedience that we walk in is not to gather his love, but it's being fueled because of his love. He has already loved you. Why do we love? He first loved us. This idea is clear in Scripture. He says in John 14, 23, he says, If you love me, you obey me. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. He says, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, when we think about that, our obedience is birthed out of love. That he has already loved us. While you were a sinner, he loved you. And now, sensing, enjoying, resting in that love, we obey. This is why Augustine, he was a a church father in the early 4th century, he said this. This is one of my favorite quotes, and half of you all know it. Love God and do what you want. Love God and do what you want. If you really love him, then that love will control what you do, and it will move you to a joy-filled obedience. An obedience that will open you up. This is so much of the reason I think we have less joy in, in Christ, because we don't see that obedience is a means of developing a deeper communion and enjoyment of God. It's not a rule-keeping thing. We love him. For me to be obedient to Carol is not a trial because I love her. So so love fuels obedience. Now, so are you a friend of Jesus? I mean, do you strive to obey him? I mean, do you look to to push sin out of your life, to bring in obedience? You know, I I think we have two, two... errors that we have to steer clear from. The first error is to have an over-familiarity with Jesus as my friend. He's my friend. We move that to he's my buddy. He's my pal. That, that, that there is, that there is a, a, a closeness where his friendship blinds us from his lordship. A, a, and we, we, we kind of dismiss obedience as an option. No, we're buddies. We're close. We're like this. And, and, and we forget that he is the Lord and, and that he does say, if you love me, then obey my commands. He says, my commands, he puts himself above the ten commands. These are my commands. He, he's the Lord. If this is you, repent, repent of this. He gets to he gets to say this now, listen, between us as friends. Who would say this kind of line in 14? You're my friends if you do what I command you. If I did that to Carol, hey, you're my friend if you do what I command you. I I mean, we don't do that to friends. We don't have that authority. We don't have that place. But he's the Lord of life. And so though he is a friend, we don't want to forget his lordship. And so we want to obey out of love, not out of duty, not out of fear, not out of threat of desertion, not out of judgment and reprisal. No, no, no. Jesus has borne that for us. Our obedience is out of love. But we want to steer clear of the other error, which is that we look at Jesus as so mighty and so glorious that we fail to draw near to him as a friend. We lose the intimacy with him because we are terrified of him. So we think of like a picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and 13 when he appears before John, and John says, I saw one like the Son of Man standing. And it says, his face was shining in the strength of the sun. His eyes were like blazing fire. And out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. And John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is, whoa. We're not getting near that one. The Israelites didn't get near the mountain when God was on it because even if they touched a rock on the mountain, they would die. So there's this fear. Well, this is the beauty of the incarnation. Because Jesus coming, he is the lion, but he is also the lamb. That in John 1, it says that no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, has come to explain him. That's Jesus bringing to us God, coming in full divinity yet now and it with humanity so that now we can see God and draw close to him. Don't lose the intimacy because of His lordship. It's a reverent affection we have. We are reverent, and yet there's an affection that he has for us, a deep and abiding love. Enjoy that. As a friend, he calls us to obey. Okay, third aspect of this is that as a friend, he has disclosed the very wonders of God's mysterious plan to us. As a friend, he's revealed. Look with me in 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for what the servant does not know what the master's doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing because servants in Scripture isn't a bad thing. I mean, Paul calls himself a servant of God, a servant of the gospel. He calls himself a servant of Jesus. We're called bond servants, right? Jesus himself is called the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42, 49, 53. So, So servant is not a bad term, but what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to show by point of comparison. Because because in in this day, a servant would just do what his master said. The master would say, go build a fire. The servant say, well, you know, it's kind of windy out. I don't know that. Why do you want to build a fire? The servant's not debating with the master. The servant is, well, I did that last day. Why do you want me to do that again? There was no questioning. There was no knowledge. The servant wasn't privy to the master's plans. The servant wasn't aware of what was motivating. The servant just did what the servant was told to do. The servant was an instrument, really, just to do it. And he says, no longer do I call you servants. I call you Friends. Jesus calls us friends, and he explains this by saying, I've revealed everything that the Father has revealed to me. He's made known to us the secrets of the kingdom. Listen, only Abraham and Moses are called friends in the Old Testament, and they had extraordinary access to God and his plans. The the saints in the Old Testament, they didn't know what God was up to. They they didn't know. They were were listening. They were listening to the, the spokesman that God had appointed for them, but they didn't know. But he's told us what he's doing. He's revealed to the Christian the cosmic redemptive plan of God. We're aware of these things. It's incredible what we have been given. As a friend, he's disclosed these to us. Now, are you a friend of Jesus? Do you recognize that if you're a Christian, you know more about God's redemptive historical plan both taking place before and going forward. You know more than the highest trained, scholastic, intellectual, the smartest guy, the smartest bulb in the pack. You know more of God's eternal plan than he does or she does if she's not a friend. You've been given more. Can you, do you understand the wealth and, and what friendship with Jesus means, that you know these things? I mean, you know why he came. You know why he came. He came to take on flesh, to take upon himself our sins, that he might reconcile us to God. He came to live. You know why he came to live. He came to live in a way that was so perfect that when the father saw Jesus, this is the son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm so well pleased in him that everybody in him I will also be well pleased in. And you know why he came. He came to die. He came to die to bear the curse, the curse that we brought on ourselves in Genesis 3. He has borne that curse even on a tree that we might receive the blessings of God. You know why he rose. He rose to confirm to us that we have been justified. God has accepted his sacrifice, and now we are all children of God. He also came to, he came, um, you also know that he ascended to the right hand of God. Right now, he's at the right hand of God, enabling me to preach, enabling you to hear, running his church above rural authority, power, and dominion. And you know that he's coming back. You know that he's coming back to set up his kingdom, to crush all darkness, to right all wrongs, to bring perfect justice, and to renew God's society in its perfection. You know all those things. It's like as I was a kid, I'd watch the pirate movie, you know, and they found the treasure map. The treasure map was everything, because X marks the spot. And If you could find that treasure map, then you had the secrets needed to tap into untold riches. And yet you now have known these things, because he has revealed them to you. What a friend we have, that he's revealed these things to us. I mean, the incredible privilege you and I have. The, the fourth aspect of his friendship is... As a friend, Jesus will make us fruitful in his kingdom. He'll make us fruitful in his kingdom. Look with me in 16 for just a minute. Uh, These are confusing words for some people. I, I hope to make them maybe a little bit more clear. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or should last. Now, listen, in this time, when a student wanted to learn from a master, he would pay the teacher, but the student would always seek out the teacher. The pupil would seek out the master. The teachers and masters did not choose pupils. Pupils chose them because they were paying. They wanted to study under them. And Jesus says, not that way. You didn't choose me, these apostles and these ph- I chose you. I chose you. I chose you and appointed you to go bear fruit. It was me sovereignly choosing you. This is the idea of grace. If I'm choosing him, then where's grace? It's in my, it's in my election of him rather than his choice of me. So he chooses us and he chooses us to be his friends. You have been chosen by God to be a friend if you if you believe in Jesus Christ. And you see him as the one who has come to save. He chose you to be his friend. And he chose you to bear fruit. And, and what is this fruit by the way? Well, of course you know this comes out of 15 John 15, which is the which where Jesus says that he is the vine. The vine, now that should draw your mind back to Isaiah 5 and 27. And the vine, Israel was to be a vine, a fruit-bearing vine, and they did not. Jesus, the true Israel, has come, and he's establishing a new Israel and a new people. And these new people will be branches off the vine, that's us, and we'll bear fruit. And what is that fruit? Well, the fruit, number one, is you being converted, you being made like Jesus, you being born again. That's part of the fruit of Jesus' work is that people actually are saved from darkness to light. They're drawn from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. So, so that's fruit that, that we actually... So some of the fruit we see is our own now love for God. But, but more fruit is that, that we begin to incrementally change acts of piety. We begin to grow holy. We no longer want to walk as the, as the old way of life. We want to walk in a new way of life. And that's part of the fruit. That, that when, I'm, when I sin and I'm convicted of my sin and I repent of my sin and I ask for grace, God, help me not to do that again. That's fruit. God's doing a work in me. He's changing me. Hopefully, you're going to look back at the end of this year and you're going to say, I love him more at the end of 16 than I did 15. Hopefully, sin bothers me more at the end of 16 than it did 15. That's fruit. But there's more fruit that he's appointed us to bear. That there's fruit that goes beyond us. And it goes into the world, the missional work, the, the activity of the kingdom. Look what he says. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The word appointed, by the way, is kind of interesting. It's used in Acts 14 and 1 Timothy 1, where it talks about appointing for a specific task, kind of a commissioning, a mission. And when it's combined with go, your mind's kind of drawn to Matthew 28, to go into all the world teaching them all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of Jesus. So, so this idea is that we have been appointed to not just be saved, to not just grow in salvation, but now to declare the very knowledge that God declared to Jesus that he's given to us, that disclosure of God's remnant of purposes. So part of being a friend of Jesus is living like him in terms of the ministry that we engage in. Now, this may be going to the ends of the world. It is for the Purdue's. It will be for the Grims. We pray for the Grims. We're praying for them now. You know, they are preparing right now to go an unreached people group. That's a big task. I want to pray for them that they would bear fruit in that endeavor. But all are not called to go there. <clears throat> to bear fruit, to, to be missionally concerned, to seek the spiritual good it begins in your family. It moves to your small groups, deals with the church at large, your community, your workplace. It it may be with Cedar Point, uh, tutoring, teaching English. These are the works of Jesus that now come out in us. And that's what he means, that as a friend, he will cause us to be fruitful. He promises, he says, and your fruit will last. So the things that you do will last. It's a promise he gives to us. It will do these things. But notice, notice what he says in the second half of 16. You know, our success and our effectiveness, I would say, is inevitable because he's promised it. But it's not automatic. Notice what he says in 16. He says, he says so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, you're going to be fruitful. But you're going to engage prayer as a means of moving into fruitless areas with the kingdom. So you're going to take the ministry into areas that seem fruitless and they're going to become fruitful through your prayers. Prayers, you know, John Piper says that preaching is the means of conversion. Prayer is the power that releases the word to break forth on the hearts of hard people so that they would see the glory of God in the face of Christ and repent and be saved. That's the idea, that, that our fruitfulness is tied into the prayer. This is why we read the Bible in sections. This is a beauty to pull out and say, well, if you just pray in Jesus' name, whatever you ask, hey, he'll give it to you. So Jesus becomes like an ingredient to a recipe. You know? Just add some of that, it'll make it all better. We just add Jesus to anything. And it, it's going to be good. No, the context is in the developing of fruitfulness in ministry. It's as we pray. So Jesus, as a friend, is going to assure us of fruitfulness. This is important. This is really important because it undermines our arrogance and our pride that we're friends. It also undermines our arrogance and pride when our ministries are effective and successful. He did not. We did not choose him. He chose us to go and bear fruit. But it also supports us and strengthens us in opposition. Listen, a lot of people say, well, the culture is trending against a bold kind of Christian faith being put out in the public marketplace. And and, and there may be opposition. There's always been opposition, right? As soon as Genesis 3 happened, we had opposition. We've always had opposition. But here's the assurance to us that even in the face of opposition, he will cause us to be fruitful. He has promised to do that. That's why in fruitless places like Iran, the church is exploding. In fruitless places like China, the church is exploding. God will not be thwarted in his plan. We know that. God will not be thwarted in his plan. So it gives us strength to go into unreached groups, to go to Cedar Point, to speak to our spouse, to embrace our children and speak to them about the things of God, to open up and be transparent and vulnerable in our care group. All these things we can do because of the promise he's given to us. But not only that, this friendship, this promise of fruitfulness, keeps our lives in focus. Listen, many of us, we find a good life defined under financial security, physical beauty, career advancement, uh, reaching the full potential of whatever we think we want to be. Those aren't bad things. They're just bad goals. They're very bad goals. He has given us, his friends, a goal. And the goal is to be fruitful, to be fruitful. And he promises that he'll make it that way. So you have this friendship with Jesus in this passage that that, that as a friend, Jesus loves us with an unsurpassable love. Uh, Jesus uh, calls us to obey him. Jesus has disclosed the incredible plan of God. We know what will happen in the end. We know the end of the story. And, and he, as a friend, he's promised to make us fruitful. Whatever you put your hand to, when you move in the name of Jesus, just remind yourself, he chose me. He appointed me to do this. And he said that I'll bear fruit. And I'll bear fruit. That's what I was praying for, for you this morning. At about 9.45 in my office. I pulled it out. I reminded myself, this will be fruitful because he's appointed me to do this this morning. And he's appointed you to hear it. So if you're a Christian here, just assess your friendships. You know, Carol and I will often, you know, at the sabbatical, we try to ask each other this question periodically, which is, um, on a scale of 1 to 10, how am I loving you physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually? We look at these four different quadrants of our marriage, and any of you that's talked to me about this, you know I've, I've said you, you ought to do it, and we do it as well. How do I love you? On a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give me? Uh, and, and how, if she gives me a 4... She hasn't. But if she were to give me a four, I, I would say, well, what would it be at a six? What? So we assess our friendship all the time. Not that we're worried about it, but friendships are like gardens. You know, you've got to get in there and pull up the weeds. You've got to keep the garden fruitful by not letting the nutrients be dispersed to the weeds. And so assess your friendship with Jesus. Think about it. Ask another brother or sister in your care group, uh, weigh in with me on on the level of my friendship. Take the time to do it. He's a good friend. And and then if you're not a Christian here, uh, becoming a friend with Jesus is, is not something that you have to prepare for. You know, If you had to get rid of these sins, if you had to do this, and if you had to get this part of your life cleaned up, and if you had to do this, it wouldn't be a salvation by grace. It'd be salvation by you doing your initial work and then Him doing the work. No, coming to Christ and becoming a friend is just bringing the whole lot of mock and just going to Him and looking at Him. You are the one that has to save me. You are the one from God that I need. That's what it means to become a Christian. And then let the Spirit of God then begin to work out all the details of what it means to be a Christian. So let's just take a minute now and... and uh, We're going to celebrate communion, but you know what? Given the nature of this sermon, let's just take a minute in silence and speak to God about this, and then I will uh, orient us to the table.